Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I'm really honored to be joined tonight, you guys, by a very special guest. Bridget Bryson is a breeder of English foxhounds in Australia, and she is working hard with a rare breed with really low numbers and doing a lot of effort. And my understanding, Bridget, with your family, right? Yes, correct. To make this breed survive into the 21st century. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Puppies have a knack for getting into mischief, especially around all the tasty treats and decorations during the holidays. With Trupanion's Breeder Support Program, you can help ensure they're protected in their new homes, even if they find themselves on the naughty list. This program allows you to send each puppy home with a special Trupanion Go Home Day offer providing immediate coverage for unexpected accidents and illnesses. Even better, Trupanion has no payout limits, and they're able to pay the veterinarian directly at the time of checkout. Perfect. The Trupanion Breeder Support Program is completely free to join and available for breeders in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Getting started is quick and easy. Just follow the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com to give yourself and your buyers peace of mind this holiday season. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I'm super excited about this conversation. Rare breeds are a huge passion of mine and we talk about them a lot on the show and English foxhounds are definitely one we haven't had. So I'm excited. So Bridget, give us a little 411. Give us your background. I mean, here you are, you're young. We love this in the dog world. Like it's somebody that's not 90. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We define under young, like under 50, right? This is yes, a hundred percent. So my name is obviously Bridget Bryson. I am one third of Fox Hunt Kennels in Australia, along with my parents, John and Celeste Bryson. They purchased their first foxhound when I was about six, so just over 30 years ago. And they originally started in Great Danes, then my mum got a beagle, and they sort of landed in between the two. I think when like, people like hear somehow that, think, this oh. was the easy out. <laughs> yeah, it was in the middle. Their passion for foxhounds came from a few issues that they had with Great Danes. There was five kids in our family. The Danes weren't necessarily reliable with small children. And their life expectancy wasn't great. So that was quite heartbreaking to explain to us. Then they got the beagle and then that was a bit small for my dad. So when they landed on the foxhounds, it fixed a lot of those problems. They're very healthy, very fit dogs. And growing up as a child with them, they're just so loving. They were just a fantastic dog to have around. And I fell in love with them quite young. My dad wouldn't let me handle them until at that stage we had to win like a qualifying heat as a junior handler. Uh-huh. So he set that task for me. When I won one of those with my beagle, then I was allowed to start showing the foxhounds. And that happened when I was 10, and I haven't looked back. I started co-breeding with them when I was 15. 
And so, yeah, for 22 years now, I've been breeding alongside them. I tell you everything about this. I have little goosebumps. It is so perfect. (laughs) And it's what we all would like to see. I myself am not a person who had children, but I am fortunate to have young people that worked for me that have taken my breeding program. And it's wonderful. And I just so admire your family, yourself, and your ability to move forward with this. And when you talk about foxhounds, as English foxhounds particularly, as loving, we have some myth-busting to do today, right? We do, definitely. Yeah, because our scent hounds are not really seen as smooshy and cuddly. They're seen as more distant and like, woo, there's a fox, I'm out there, right? So, (laughs) yeah, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that's a misconception from the past. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. especially in Australia and the UK where fox hunting is banned, then these packs got disbanded and Mm -hmm. people might have come across an older dog that they rescued that wasn't raised in a family home, that was raised in a pack. And that dog probably was distant and didn't really adjust. But if you raised a foxhound puppy, it's a completely different experience. You know, they are very loving. They're independent but they love humans. You know, it's important to them to have a human around. They respond super well to leadership. You know, they look for it. Right. Which is not, I mean, I'm saying as I'm a pretty well-rounded dog person, I would not have guessed that. Yeah. And also the prey drive I find interesting when I sometimes Google research Mm -hmm. just to see what the general public are getting when they search for them on the internet and they'll go on and on about the prey drive. Now, My sister's got Siberian Huskies, and I can tell you when it comes to prey drive, I could leave my chihuahuas or my cat around my foxhounds, and Mm. they know that that's not their goal. This isn't what you're meant to be after. I could Mm. never leave them with Siberian Huskies. So I think that's another thing. When we do the judges' training lectures here, we try Mm -hmm. and teach people. A foxhound on a hunt would have Mm -hmm. to pass through many properties. Mm -hmm. On those properties, there'll be livestock, chickens, the neighbor's dog, And they should stick to their task and not go off and have that sort of prey drive where they're going to lose sight of their objective. That's another one that blows my mind. I don't really know where that came from. Whilst once they get on a scent and they've got a job, you're probably not going to be able to stop them. Their prey drive will Mm -hmm. kick in. Mm -hmm. But that prey drive isn't going to happen for the neighbor's cat. They'd have to be out in a field chasing something and get a scent for something that's interesting to them and the cat shouldn't be. Sure. So like the PBGVs, I showed a number of petites. My friend has Basset Fauve. Ears are for decoration only. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, foxhounds should have smaller ears. It's one of the things that should set them apart. However, they used to round them in the packs. So if you look back at older photos, you're going to think, oh, why are their ears so big now? And it's just because we don't. No, no, no. I meant that they only use their ears for decoration. They don't listen with them. Oh, they don't listen. I thought you meant, yeah, I was thinking construction here. Yeah. I think fox sounds are probably better than those Mm. breeds at listening. We do have many owners that train them and they've got good recall, provided they're not on a scent. So I do recommend to people that if you're going to try and do those things, train them from when they're young. And I would recommend using a tracking collar. Because they're not 100% reliable if something better comes along. Yeah. But I I don't think they're any more difficult than any other hound breed. 
I have always had other breeds on the side that I mm-hmm. handle, you know, sort of more popular breeds that probably win a bit more. That sort of keeps you going in the show ring when you've got rare breeds. Yes. And I've always had an Afghan until mm-hmm. recently. And I think foxhounds are much, much easier to train and to raise than, say, Afghans or beagles. Okay. So let's talk about the foxhounds, English foxhounds specifically. So in the U.S., I assume you have American foxhounds in Australia also. We don't. So this is also another interesting thing. I mean, we'll regularly in Australia or the UK, we just call them foxhounds. American foxhounds are not recognized here. We don't have any. So it's like a cockerspaniel or an American cockerspaniel. We just have a foxhound or we say American foxhound. We don't necessarily refer to foxhounds as English foxhounds. They're just foxhounds. So they're registered name with the UK, like with the Kennel Club. And for the Australian Kennel Club Mm -hmm. is just foxhound, not English foxhound. Yeah. Okay, now you've just blown my brain up. I know, this happens to people all the time because they'll say, oh, you're talking about English foxhounds when I speak to Americans because I just refer to them as foxhounds. But for me, that's what they are because we don't really have American foxhounds here. Okay. I've just learned something entirely new, which is why I love my job so much. (laughs) So talk to us about foxhounds. In our case in the U.S., English foxhounds, but in your case, foxhounds. There yeah. are not very many of them anywhere. No, there's Talk not. Talk to us about that. Look, I don't know if that's ever going to change dramatically. Mm. I have this conversation with people regularly. I don't think that's my goal. I don't know that you can ever make them mainstream. Mm. Their history is so deep and, you know, it's entrenched in people's brains that this is a hunting and a working breed that's not going to fit in my suburban backyard. Mm. So I don't know if you can ever change that. My goal is just to see them survive. That will happen in the packs. There's many packs. You know, we're not going to have a figure of how many dogs exist in those packs, but they're there. And I think that they will always be there through people like me that have maybe grown up in that pack and they're obsessed with the breed, so they'll keep it going. What I would like to see is if we could have a few breeders in each country breeding them, that would be a success for me. It's enough to keep them alive and not let that piece of history die for me. I think I really enjoy the history of the breed. I love that almost every kennel club you visit around the world is going to have a painting of foxhounds hunting. I think it's important to maintain it for that reason. I, of course, would love to see them become more popular with the general public. I just don't know if that's possible. The sizes of houses and properties and everything, it's going to be the same problem for all large breeds. It's getting smaller. And realistically, as much as you can raise them to live in a smaller environment, it's not ideal for them. And people would have to put in a lot more effort to meeting their energy needs. My goal is just to get them out there with breeders around the world. That's what I'm trying to achieve now. You know, if someone contacts me and says, I've always dreamt of owning an English foxhound, I am going to find a way to get this person a dog because they're the type of people that I need to have them. You know, I think about the fact that here in the U.S., the French Bulldog just passed the Labrador Retriever as the most popular, most registered dog. And it speaks to that conversation that you're having about size. And a foxhound's going to weigh 80 pounds? Yeah, well, for us, we do it with kilos. But yeah, the average would be 35 to 45 kilos. You know, Which they're is... not a very tall dog, but the right. substance for their size. Big, yeah. substantial. It might only be the size of a Dalmatian or a pointer, but you're talking mm-hmm. double the weight. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, because they're so dense. 
Yes, exactly. Right. That's the perfect word right. for it. Yeah. Right. I think that is really just an amazing statement that we're talking about just two or three breeders in each country to try yeah. and keep this alive. That's how low it is right now. I mean, there's not a single registered breeder well, that has had a litter in the UK that I can think of in the last 10 years. So they're still breeding them in packs. We have one active registered breeder in New Zealand who's fantastic. And there's a few really healthy packs over there that have some dogs from us as well. And in America, there's a handful if they even keep breeding, but they start aging out too. And that's what's happening here. There was four main breeders that we had myself and my parents before me worked in with. One of those hasn't bred a litter for a decade and the other two are at the point where they're saying to me, I don't know if I'll have any more just because they're getting a bit older. It's just the conversation you and I had, like I overslept because I had to have a nap before I whelped this litter that's due tonight. I mean, it's real. It's hard. You know, it's real. And I say this all the time. I am not ancient. You know, I'm in my mid fifties and it's hard work to do. It's hard. Yeah. And so I love your passion for what you're trying to do to save your breed. So two things I want to touch on. One, delve a little bit into some of the amazing stories of the history of the breed so that people have a concept. Because I talk on the podcast a lot about each purebred dog that we know today represents a specific time and a specific place and a specific people. So that kind of mythical history stuff is really cool to me. And then let's talk about some of the tips and tools that you can suggest to other people with other rare breeds that they too are trying to just keep alive. Yeah, I think with the foxhounds and where it's disappointing in England that it's died out. I mean, in England, it sort of represents a time where maybe they stopped fighting. The wars started dying down. People were looking for active sports less brutal sports than bullfighting and things. It was seen as more of an elite sport and they were very proud and it was a family thing that everyone could be involved in. And even if the women weren't out there hunting, you know, puppy walkers were a vital part of packs. So when the pups were born, they were sent off and they would go live with just the farmers and be raised by the women until they were 12 months old. They were that much a part of the family I was reading a book recently from 1935 and when a lady had asked the master of the hunt, what do I feed the puppy? He said, what's left of the baby's bottle? You feed one from this breast and the other from that. You know, that's how closely knit they were with the community. So on every level, they were a part of life. Mm -hmm. So it was the sport on the weekend. Then you had the women at home looking after the puppies and raising them right. It was a really good time in English history. So I think it would be sad for that to die out. I also think it's sad that the mentality towards the hunting changed and it became something that was seen as a vicious sport, you know, and it really wasn't. At the end of the day, when you're hunting something that is a problem for farmers, you weren't just going out there killing a dog down the road or hunting anything, you know, they were were hunting an actual service. Yes, exactly. So I think it's very sad that that mentality towards them has changed. But yeah, that's basically what they represent to me when it comes to their history. And I love breeds that are fit for a purpose. 
I struggle with breeds that have had a lot of human intervention and that can't reproduce naturally. That would be a very controversial topic, but I don't necessarily think that a dog that isn't capable of producing itself should really continue to be bred from. That's something that I really, really love about foxhounds is that you can go back and look at photos or paintings from 300 years ago and they still look the same. That dog could walk. There's not many breeds that can say that and they are incredibly healthy. Now, that's another one that's complex. Foxhounds have been largely inbred since the beginning of time. But with that, only the strong survived. There is no hereditary diseases in the breed. Now, in this day and age, that is incredible. But part of that... almost unheard of. Right. Part of that is that there hasn't been human intervention. So all the debates that people have about inbreeding, and I have this debate with people regularly because they'll say to me, you're going to have to outcross. And I say, well, you need to outcross because you've got problems you need to fix. But if I don't have any problems, why do I need to do that? Yeah. A litter we had last year was from a six-year-old maiden bitch, 15 puppies. You know, so, so we're not having really, those issues that other people have. They're incredibly healthy and people buying these dogs that they spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars trying to keep alive. I can sell you a foxhound that will only have to go to the vet for its vaccinations. Like it is not uncommon for a foxhound to go its entire life only attending the vet for vaccinations. That's normal. An unhealthy foxhound is abnormal. So I think, oh, if I was a family, why would I go off and spend $10,000 to buy a designer crossbred French bulldog that's been mixed with something else when I could probably go get a foxhound for $500 off Trade Me that's going to live a happy and healthy life? So Bridget, speak to this a little bit more, please, because this is a topic that literally just drives me nutty. The people... We're going to call them people. We're not going to go with specialized <laughs> titles who insist that it is the actual act of inbreeding that causes disease. Can you please bring me your knowledge? Yeah, I know you've got the same face. I've got the yeah, face. I do. <laughs> I've got the same face, man. If it doesn't exist, it can't exist. Right. And I think Foxhound's a living proof of that. If it doesn't exist, you can't breed it into existence. You have to breed it in from somewhere for it to exist in your lines. It has to have come from somewhere. Obviously, there's other diseases that kill dogs and there's things that are genetic but not hereditary. And it's like humans. We all die from a cause. Dogs are no different. But there isn't any. And I think they're living proof and they would be a great part of a debate for anybody that wanted to have that debate. This is why I'm asking you, because I've just recently been in conversation with an individual that we're not going to get into. But this is a topic that makes me crazy because this individual insists that it is simply a high COI that's causing all these dogs to have disease. No, no. That's not scientifically accurate. Yeah, it's not actually possible. Yeah. Right. But I think also human intervention has played a big part in that. You know, if you allowed breeds to only breed if they could reproduce themselves, you probably wouldn't have ended up with the issues that you've got now in other breeds. We have had 50 to 100 litters of foxhounds and we have had four C sections. Mm-hmm. And we have done two AIs mm-hmm. ever. But this is the other issue is that because we have built our lifestyle 
around this breed and always making sure that even if I was living in the suburbs for work or something, my parents had the space to maintain a pack. Most people can't do that, what we do. We don't have anywhere to go to outcross. So we always had to maintain our own gene pool in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Most breeders will keep bitches. Then they'll go get semen and they'll do AIs to get their bitches pregnant because they can't keep the numbers or those sorts of boundaries. We don't have that. A stud dog to me, a living live stud dog that I have in my yard, is just as valuable as a brood bitch. Mm-hmm. They hold the same weight mm-hmm. because the way we want to keep breeding foxhounds is the way they've always been bred. And that is to let them do it themselves and make sure that only the healthy ones, only the ones that can reproduce, you know, a foxhound bitch should be able to get pregnant. Everyone I know that breeds foxhounds has had accidental matings. Oh, sure. You shouldn't have to do proj tests and pick a perfect day. You should be able to go, if I leave her with that dog between day seven and day 21, she's going to get pregnant. And I would like to maintain that. I think Mm -hmm. that helps to keep the healthy dogs going. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. I hear from folks pretty much daily asking for a specific topic or for a series of podcasts on a topic. So ask and you shall receive. (laughs) I've done all the hard work. I've sorted, searched, and compiled eight different albums from the archives on our most popular topics. And when I say there's a podcast for that, I ain't just a woofin'. Getting yours today is super simple. Just jump on puredogtalk.com backslash store and click the PDT albums image. And when you're in there, you're going to find a collection of veterinary voices. You're going to find a collection for breeding and whelping hands-on. You'll find Pure Dog Talk University on dog breeding. Love the breeds. Up your game. Owner handlers, the interviews, events and sports. There is so much there. And once you're in those links, you'll be able to read the details of the topic. For a special introductory price of a buck ninety-nine, you get a link to dozens, up to more than a hundred episodes on these specific topics. And while you're there, if you or a friend or family member are just getting started, even just starting a search for your first well-bred purebred dog, you can also check out Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs at puredogtalk.com backslash book to get the foundational Pure Dog Talk episodes with bonus tracks. So hop on it, y'all. These special prices will not last. So I think there's another piece of that, Bridget, that is where I see even more of an issue here in the U.S. And I can't speak to Australia or any of the other countries and even necessarily every breed. But too often in the U.S. and in today's society, maybe it's a global thing and it's a today's society thing, we're very tenderhearted. Everything has to live. And I think about... One of my early wire hair pointer mentors was a little old lady that lived in Northern California. She sexed chickens for a living. Like she was a cookie. I loved her. And almost until the very end of her life, 
her bitches whelped in the kennel in a dog mm-hmm. box with straw by themselves, did the whole thing. She went out in the morning and found the puppies. So I've got a litter due any minute. And I couldn't conceive of that. And yeah. I consider myself relatively let nature do its thing compared to most of my contemporaries. So speak a little bit to that from your experience. Yeah, I do agree. I think we've changed a lot with that. Growing up as a child, foxhounds would regularly do that. You would go out in the morning and they would have just had their puppies because they weren't waiting for you. They weren't waiting for you to come and get them and take them in somewhere comfortable. It's They just do their thing. You know, and also this is where their temperaments are amazing. Even if there was another dog around them in a kennel, whether it was a bitch or a male, or they would step back, they would never hurt the puppies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pack animals and they were built to do it themselves. And again, we haven't really interfered, so they still do that now. It's complex because I think if you allow that let nature take its course now, the general public thinks you're awful. Obviously, I was quite young when I started being around when dogs were whelping and a puppy comes out and Mm -hmm. it's not doing so well. And my instinct was, I can't let this die. I have to fight. So even if I'm fighting for 10 or 15 minutes trying to get this puppy breathing, I'd still keep going. Mm -hmm. And my parents had an old-time breeder who was quite rough around the edges, but they did their job. And he said to me, I guarantee you every one of those puppies that you keep alive is going to die at some point from a health problem anyway because it wasn't meant to be alive. And it wasn't until that happened to me a few times when it was much more horrific, when they were six or eight weeks old or six months old, and then all of a sudden the health problem came to light that I sort of got the point that natural selection happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. I do think that we need to respect that a little bit more. Mother nature doesn't do anything by accident is something that one of my old-time mothers said to me. Yeah. And... There's a reason that dogs have litters of puppies. Because they're not all meant to survive. Yes. I just went through a situation. I say just. It feels really close to the skin, but it was three years ago. A litter, the bitch had contracted somehow or the other toxoplasmosis. There had been a cat on my property, which I had never seen. (laughs) Anyway, toxo. And we had a number of very, very ill puppies. The litter, the birth weights were a third what they should have been in nature. And I mean, I fought, I saved every single one of those 13 puppies. I killed myself to do it in nature. Three of them would have lived. Yeah. And and about that a lot. Definitely. And I think it depends whether that then ends the way my situations did. It changes your perspective. You know, I do it differently now if I'm faced with that situation based on not wanting the heartbreak for myself or that dog later. Also the fact that, We're sort of forced to only produce healthy dogs because a lot of our homes are hunting homes. So the reality is if there's something wrong with it, it's not going to survive wherever it goes. So there's a lot of pressure on us. I mean, I see these people walking around with a dog with a prosthetic leg or something, and I think that's fantastic, but I couldn't do that to a foxhound, you know, because it just wouldn't be able to live comfortably. So I think it just depends. Also, there's the whole craze of almost having a slightly deformed dog you know where you see them online where you've got a chihuahua with its tongue hanging out of its mouth or a breed that's got full bottom teeth showing that can't close its mouth properly and people are sitting there making gifts of it and think it's funny yeah the general public I, care about yeah. dogs being perfectly healthy yeah again another 
topic that I kind of randomly wax philosophical on the podcast is the concept <laughs> that culture around the globe, truly, it's not just the U.S., although the U.S. seems to make a big habit of it, of straying far, far from agrarian roots where many of our breeds started. Okay. Yeah. Foxhounds, Ivewire, Hair Pointers, most, if not 75% of the breeds that exist today were developed to do a specific job of work, yes. not yeah. to just be yeah. cute. There were the just be cute dogs, pugs and chihuahuas. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, we had companion yeah. dogs. Human hot water bottles. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or flea catchers. Laoshi yeah. or flea catchers. I love them. Yeah. And I don't denigrate them. But on the other hand, our society today doesn't know what to do with that. Yeah. And I'm not sure that we as dog breeders are going to change society. <laughs> but rather we have to change what we do to fit society. So this is where yeah. I wanted you to continue with your conversation about ways that you are making this old, ancient hunting breed appeal so that you can preserve it. Yeah, I think you have to focus on the things that you have that those other breeds don't have. The cost of living is skyrocketed around the world, things like that. And I always try and focus on this with foxhounds. I always go back to how healthy and fit they are. If you can focus on those things that affect the day-to-day -day family, I think that does help. Because if I can get it across to you that if you purchase a foxhound from me, you might have to go to the dog park an extra three times, but you're not going to spend $30,000 in vet bills. Yeah. I think it has to be marketing from a perspective. It's like if I'm trying to sell a product, what has my product got that the other product doesn't? Mm -hmm. And I think you also have to be smart with where you send your puppies. That's something that blows my mind when other people have litters that the whole litter is sold before it was born. And I think how do you know what puppy is going to suit what lifestyle? So for me, I pride myself on, and my dad often says I speak foxhound. This is how he describes it. I pride myself on being able to pick puppies and what they're going to be good at. So I want to be able to pick a hunting puppy at four weeks old, mm -hmm. six weeks old. So we regularly don't sell our dogs or allow them to even have a deposit put on them until they're six to eight weeks old. I think people selling the wrong dogs to the wrong places causes massive issues. Because if I go sell a puppy that's meant to be a hunting dog by nature to a suburban backyard and it's loud and it's destructive, that person leaves large active breeds with a sour taste in their mouth. It doesn't just affect foxhounds. They're then going to go off and get something small and easy because their experience with a large active breed was a negative one. That to me is the breeder's fault. Yeah. They should not have sent that dog. You know, the last litter that we had, there was a puppy and immediately, it was the red boy, that's what it was called, see, it was the red collar. And it was we all knew red boy has to go hunting. Yes. And I'm talking about a puppy that at three months old went out on his first wild bull hunt. Now imagine if I put that dog in a suburban backyard. Trust me, you are 100% speaking my language because I do the same yeah. thing. Yeah, you have to know their personalities before we even get to construction. Because yes. even as a show dog, I can have an amazing, I actually did it. This is how bad I am. I did it to Diane before I sent the puppy over to her. She had picked a puppy. Mm -hmm. It was paid for. The flights were booked. Everything was done. 
two days before she was meant to get on the plane, I said, you have to trust me, this isn't the right dog. Her temperament's not going to cope with this trip. This is not the right one. I'm going to swap this. And she trusted me and it was 100% the right decision. Now, what we chose to do in that situation, though, I think is what separates good breeders and bad breeders. I didn't just take the money and run and say, it's your problem. It was happy when it left. I used my foresight to go, I foresee a problem. She might look like a happy puppy, but the way she was processing things, I just don't think she's going to cope. She's still in our backyard to sext. Yeah. Because I then still didn't go make her someone else's problem. If I don't think she has a good enough temperament, she's my problem. Exactly. She's my problem. I, yes. (laughs) Because in my mind, if I send that puppy on to someone else, Mm -hmm. What's that family's experience like with an ethical purebred dog breeder? That's right. That they sent me a dog that I can't take out to do normal things because its temperament's not great. Yeah. I have one I just sent to doggy heaven for that very reason. Yeah. Was great up until six months, placed him in a home, went out to the home, came back two months later. I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, some screw slotted somewhere wrong, man. Yeah. He stayed with me. And I tried and he wasn't meant for this world. And I think that we talk a lot about ethical breeders and what responsible breeders do. And one of the things that we don't talk enough about because it is not culturally acceptable is that there are dogs, just like there are people, there are dogs who just aren't wired right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Responsible ethical breeders do not place them. That's right. So you you either decide that the animal's not right for this world, and that's a very difficult thing for a lot of people to do. But if you can't do that, then in my opinion, it's your responsibility to keep that dog yourself. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think this is a big thing that has happened with foxhounds, you know, and there's even some breeders that I've seen over the years do things where from the second that I see where their puppies land, we call them boomerangs in Australia. It's going to come back. There's no way these people are going to be able to look after that dog because they might sell an older couple in their mid to late 60s to male foxhounds together, puppies, brothers. Like, and I think this that? can't, yeah, this isn't going to work. And then anyone that's associated with those people is then going to have a bad opinion of foxhounds when it wasn't the foxhounds' fault. I will tell you, 98.9% of the time, it isn't the dog's fault. <laughs> yeah. It's either the breeder's fault or the owner's fault or a combination thereof. I think another big problem is, though, that I don't know if the same thing's happening there, but here with our government and our laws are changing around breeding and the amount of breeding dogs that you are allowed to keep. And that causes a big problem because people choose their puppies. They're selling their puppies before they're born because they don't want to keep them and they're anxious for them to be gone the day they turn eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And they might keep the wrong one themselves, that maybe it does have a spicy temperament. Maybe it has taken a nip at one of the neighbor's kids or done something and you probably shouldn't be breeding from it, but you've already let the rest of them go by the time you realize this at 12 months. And if you don't breed from this bitch, you've only got one other one. So you end up breeding from it because otherwise they've got nowhere to go. The luxury we have with having multiple houses is that it enables us to keep more dogs. Yeah, 100%. And I just think that as we move forward in this goal, this concept of preserving, whether it's a super rare breed like the English Foxhound or even a breed like mine that isn't as low number, I mean, it's very common, but the quality of what's available isn't that great. Yes. 
and people are making poor choices that are making people not want this breed from good breeders because the breeders who are making poor choices are ruining it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have this saying that I said recently to my dad and he was like, okay, elaborate. And I was like, I think it covers so many areas of dog breeding, dog showing. When people make decisions, take your ego out of it. Don't ask yourself, what do I want to do? Or what do I think's best? Because you know what's best for me is to sell those puppies before they're born and they're gone at eight weeks and it's not my problem and I pick my pick in it. But you have to think what's best for the breed. And I think especially if you have a popular breed, and I had this conversation with a friend recently that doesn't necessarily share bloodlines, if you have a popular breed, the weight doesn't fall on your shoulders to keep that breed alive. If you have a rare breed, it does. So you really have to take your opinions out of it. Do I want to give away best in show winning dogs? I'm a dog handler. I show dogs every week and we're heavily entrenched in dog shows here. We own dog magazines and online entry providers. For my family, this is an enormous part of our life. Do I want to watch other people win best in shows with dogs that I could be winning best in shows with? Not particularly. (laughs) Who does? Because I think I could have won that. But the reality is that's not what's best for the breed. What good does it do English foxhounds if everyone just sees me win best in shows in Australia for 50 years? Zero. So the decisions that we make have to be based on the fact that this is what's best for the breed. And that comes down to everything. If you take your ego out of everything, I don't want to sell Joe Blow down the street a dog because Joe's friends with Jenny and I hate Jenny and I don't want Jenny to get my bloodlines. Well, that's because you hate Jenny. But at the end of the day, if Jenny ended up with better foxhounds because I let Joe have one, is that actually worse or better for the breed? You know? So I think if you take your ego out of it, and I'm so sick of the debate where people are like, oh, but I've had a bad experience. Well, we all have. But if a girl was mean to you in high school, are you never going to have a friend again? Because someone was mean to you one time? You know, you had your heart broken. Are you never going to have a relationship again? because someone else broke your heart. That's the mentality that has crept into dog shows. Well, someone did the wrong thing by me and sold my puppy or didn't let me have a puppy back when they bred from it. So now I'm never going to share ever again. And now what's happening is we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and we're restricting it. It would be a completely unhealthy mentality to adapt in your normal everyday life. But for some reason it's accepted within dog breeding that you can have that closed-minded mentality and not share with anyone. Yeah, if we didn't share with anyone, there would quite literally end up being no foxhounds. And I'm not okay with that. So even when we put those dogs on a plane, I know once they get on that plane, I have no control anymore and they could end up anywhere. But I have to trust the people. And I have to trust and take the risk that hopefully it is the right move for the breed. And so far, you know, we've got it right. Yeah, we've had some bad experiences. I've gotten dogs back like everyone else has that have come back too skinny or not cared for or lost their temperament or things that happen. It's just, that's part of it. Yeah. You can't cut off everyone else because of those little bad experiences. So that's my theory that would fix a lot of problems is to take your ego out of it. Bridget, I will tell you that is so amazing. Number one, you are a hundred percent wise beyond your years. And I give you mass props for that. And I will never forget when I was a baby dog handler. So I was much younger than you are today. And I was working for a dog handler here in the U.S. And, you know, you sit around at the end of the day and you jack your jaws, right? It's like we make our living off of other people's ego. That was his. 
And I thought about that a lot over the years as I got older and became not a baby dog handler anymore. And I thought, you know, I would like to change that mentality. And I would like to believe that I make my living off of helping other people's dreams come true. Yes. And so that's how I fixed it for me. I love how you fixed it for you. I think that is beautiful and I think it is of benefit to your breed. And I hope that there are people in other rare breeds who can take this to heart and hear this message because I think it is really, truly profound. Thank you. I hope so too. I do think also we need to harness the young where we can. I am about to send a puppy who from two weeks old, I was like, this puppy, this bitch could be one of the best we've ever bred. I love her. And I've got these people that have got a 10-year-old daughter in South Africa who's decided at 10 years old they want a foxhound. So instead of me giving them just one of them, I choose, I'm going to give you probably the best one. And it's a combination of being the best one. There's different colours in the litter and people still have a textbook idea in their brain of exactly what an English foxhound should look like, which is usually a well-marked tricolour, no different to beagles. It's always going to be harder to win with an open marked one. Mm -hmm. So I think, well, this is probably equal to that one and I want to keep this one. But I also know that for a child in a country where there isn't really any, what's going to be easier for her to have a good experience with. So she's getting this beautiful little puppy who is aptly named Cinderella. (laughs) No crying. But I said, I actually said to her mother, I said, the only reason this is happening is because I was 10 years old when I got my first foxhound. So I think it's not about now. I don't care if she never gets shown. I don't care if she doesn't win anything. I think if 15 years from now, maybe this young girl might want to have a litter of foxhounds. That's the choices I think that people have to make. I love that. Okay, Bridget, shockingly enough, we are over time. But uh, (laughs) I'm not surprised at all. This has been an amazingly powerful conversation. And I truly, truly appreciate your time. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.